Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm here with Felix Velardi, co-founder of the 2Y3X program and author of the book, Scale at Speed, How to Triple the Size of Your Business and Build a Superstar Team. Felix, I want to thank you both for your time in coming on the podcast today, for sending me a copy of your wonderful book that I've got in front of me as well. <laughs> uh, you. You, you were just talking about the fact that you've had a really long day full of webinars and podcasts, so I really appreciate you taking the time out. And we were just laughing and saying, hopefully, that the fact I've got you nearer the end of the day today means that I'll be able to distill some of your raw and unfiltered truths behind how to scale at <laughs> speed, um, your your marketing and business growth lessons uh, that really you've developed and learned and distilled into this book over a 25-year career. And uh, yeah, so firstly, Felix, welcome. Thank you. Uh, really pleased to be here. With all these recordings and interviews, it's really interesting because we usually have a, a little chat beforehand just to set things up. And as you said, it's for me, it's been a very long day. I've done loads of interviews. I am all soundbited out. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it was so nice uh, when we were just chatting before this for you to, to be so welcoming. So I'm really pleased to be here. And thank you for having me on. Leading on from that introduction. So one of the first things that made me smile as I was doing my research for this podcast is there's a note very early on in the foreword of, uh, of your book explaining how you started one of the world's first web design agencies, which was, I think was in 1994. And I just uh, noted there that you've had a 25 plus year career in helping businesses grow. And it really made me smile because I thought back in 1994, I don't even think I knew all of my limbs at that point. Um, <laughs> and so I've got so much that I can learn from you. And well, it's just in front of me, some, it's really hard always to distill and to describe the breadth of someone's career, um, you have many accolades. Uh, you have been an author, chairman, non-exec director, um, speaker, uh, CEO. There are just so many positions that you've held. But the interesting thing to me, as I was looking over your career and through your experience, is that everything seems to be – well, there are some, firstly, there are some key fields – so the thing that stood out to me is that there's a lot of focus around culture and organization. Value proposition is something that stood out to me. Mm. Focusing on strategy and planning, not as opposed to tactics, but maybe differentiating clearly between strategy and tactics seemed to be something that you were passionate about uh, and understanding the differences between the two. And the thing that really stood out to me, though, more than anything, as I looked at scale at speed and I was thinking about the intro to this episode, is why do things fast? Why do we need to focus on scaling at speed? Is that something that's personally motivating to you? And I say that in context of just life's pressures uh, in 2021. So much is fast moving, particularly in, uh, in marketing and in business. We put so much pressure on ourselves to do things fast. And sometimes I think we can lose, sometimes that leads to burnout. We can lose our passion. And also, so I'm just interested to know where your 
drive for scaling at speed comes from as a starting mm. point for this episode. That's a really, it's a good observation and an interesting question. Um, I don't believe in doing things fast, particularly. What I'm really interested in is what does it take to make change? And usually change is uh, the consequence of, of overcoming inertia. And inertia, by almost by definition, is the ultimate slow. I'm a fan of slow cooking. I'm a fan of lazy Sunday afternoons and taking things, appreciating life. And it's not like my career's been very fast. It's been quite long. And so there's an awful lot of stuff that turns out to be on my LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> so it looks like it's but, – but you do things over time and they stack up. Mm. And sometimes it's a surprise. I remember going recently over my LinkedIn profile just to see what I could tidy up. And there's an awful lot of stuff there. And some of it felt like it took bloody ages. <laughs> mm. um, you know, it wasn't quick at all. And and I had this amazing sort of up and down career for 22 years as a founder, particularly in digital. I had a bunch of digital agencies in strategy and all sorts of different things, CRM and social and uh, web design. And one of the problems when you're an entrepreneur and you want to grow your company is figuring out what's too fast and what's too slow. Mm. And one of the problems that comes from doing things slowly when you're trying to grow a business, and I don't mean when you're trying to maintain a stable business, if you if you are determined to grow your business, say you're you know you, you you've had a brilliant idea, you want to get to a million turnover, or, and then you want to get to two, and then you want to get to five, and so on. Um, it's very dangerous to do that too slowly. And what I mean by that is, most business leaders, when they're in uh, Mister Sensible Pants mode, um, will sort of be reasonable about growth, and they'll say, well we should aim for doing 10% better this year or maybe 20% better this year. And one of the problems with especially small businesses is that 10 or 20% is more or less within the margin for error. And if you get, you know, one of your clients leaves or you're, you know, you lose a key member of staff or there's a pandemic or whatever, that can derail your 10% plus and make it 10% minus. And one of the problems for ambitious owners, entrepreneurial types, is you want change. You want to keep making progress. You want to feel like you are um, moving forwards. And that if you're stuck in this kind of twilight zone of feast and famine or, you know, one step forward, two steps backwards, um, that can become extremely frustrating. And if you're frustrated, you become stressed if you're stressed, you lose your morale. If you lose your morale, your team loses their morale, and then the whole thing um, falls to bits or is in ri it risks falling to bits. So to some degree, you have to keep a pace going. And one of the things that I learned, so I, I ran a CRM strategy company. It was the first eCRM agency. And, and, and I ran that for many years. In fact, I sold it, bought it back, and then sold it again. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why, but I did. <laughs> um, and one of the things that you learn when you're thinking about CRM and what people now call sales funnels is that we move people along. We make progress one step at a time. We don't make progress by making leaps particularly. We make progress by making a big plan and then relentlessly working our way through it. And it turns out that if you approach growing your business like that, you can pretty easily double your revenue in a couple of years. And my company, 2Y3X, that's what we do. The 2Y3X program guarantees that. We double our clients' revenue over two years. And it's not as hard as you think. It sounds like it's really fast. But the reality is 100% growth in two years is you could break that down. It's either 
um, 40% growth over two years, year on year, or it's 3% a month. Now, actually, if you break it down so it's 3% extra a month, and, and obviously that's reliant on you know the notion of, of compound interest, and it kind of makes some assumptions about, about steady pacing and so on. But if you break things down into small enough steps, those steps become easily achievable. And if you're relentless about that progress through those steps, then you can do absolutely amazing things. And 2Y3X was named originally because it's a two-year program, so mm. 2Y. And 3X was with three times revenue. And COVID knocked our stats to hell, unfortunately. Um, but we still, you know, we, we, our promise is that that we can move you on in a way that is feels slow and well paced and structured and um, low risk. But actually, th- when you step back, it th- it's only then that it looks like you've done something fast. I'm not sure yeah. if that, make, that, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, what I'm hearing is um, so. My question originally was: Does the speed drive you? But actually, um, it's not the speed that drives you, but through your experience and the lessons that you've learned and what you teach at Two Y Three X, you've managed to distill the fundamentals down to a pace where most businesses can grow. And you just said you guarantee that mm. they uh, double. The, I think they double their revenue in two years. Mm. Um, so it's, so it's less a drive through speed, but it's just the accumulation of skills and experience and the lessons that you've learned that have enabled you to build frameworks that enables, uh, companies to grow in that period of time. I mean, everything that we do comes from personal experience, right? Mm. And, and, you know, all, all of the lessons that we learn, we incorporate into our own ways of thinking and ways of doing things. And we incorporate the things that fit and suit and the, we discard the things that don't. And it's kind of like that being an entrepreneur. When I, as you say, I, I started my first agency in 1994. So I had a long time ago. Um, and the truth is I wasn't a very good leader or manager for a long, long time. I mean, arguably people might think the same now, but um, I, I screwed up an awful lot and I didn't know what I was doing. For most of the time, certainly for the first 10 years, I had no idea what I was doing whatsoever. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how to be creative and strategic. And, uh, you know, I, I helped, you know, I was part of the a fairly small group of people that defined many of the social media and the, the strategic frameworks that we use now in, in digital marketing and, and on the internet. Um, but what got in the way was I didn't know how to run a business. And so I was doing the learning about running a business entirely through trial and error. And part of that was because I was a bit arrogant and I had blue hair and I thought I, I knew everything and that we were changing the world and the old ways, you know, who can teach me? It's, you know, my new business kind of thing. And that arrogance lasted for a long time. And, and it took me 10 years before I sought outside help. And when I did, it was like, oh, my God, my, my, my mind was blown. Um, and suddenly everything blossomed and it was amazing because at a certain point, I think most of us get to, when I say us, I mean, most, most sort of entrepreneurial types, the people who really want to change things and do things and and grow things and, uh, and make progress and have a positive impact. I think we get bogged down in perfecting what we're, what we're doing right now. And most of the owners and, and business leaders that I work with, and that we work with in the program that they've they've got stuck and they've got stuck because they've they've spent quite a long time usually two or three years getting from i don't know a million to two million um or zero to a million and then they find processes that work brilliantly for the business that they're at and the problem is that the business that you're at now um there's a, a book called what called you hear uh, won't get you there, and and it's true. What what you're doing now is not the same thing that will get you to five million or ten million or a hundred million in revenue. Those same processes won't work at a different scale. The same people won't work. The same reporting structures, management, the work, the same. You know, if you've got a client who currently pays you 
don't know, 50 grand a year for you to give them service. A client that wants, that's going to give you half a million pounds a year or quarter of a million is going to want entirely different things. They're going to want different kinds of management, different reporting, different techniques, different uh, results, different workflows and so on. So the stuff that you're doing now that you've perfected, that you've got a team who've, who've made it work, this is no longer, if you, if you picture yourself in a couple of years' time, W revenue, what you're doing right now ain't going to be fit for purpose. So a lot of what we encounter is, is, is that need for change, for transformation, but without, you know, when people don't know how to do that because they haven't been there before. And it took me, I mean, as I say, I had six agencies and I ran an agency group. It took me an awfully long time before I realized that I now knew what it looks like on the other side of that growth plateau mm. and that I knew how to get through it and I'd had sufficient practice. And then now we've got an international program and it's, it's awesome to be a part of because you spend your entire time saying, it's okay, we know how to do it. You don't have to beat your head against the brick wall with trial and error anymore because actually here's a method. And the method is is just about pacing things and doing things in an orderly manner. So I want to come back to that point about pacing because I think it's uh, really important. And also it's a thread that is naturally as part of the, the book title, Scared at Speed. You know, pacing is a theme that comes up mm. in your book early and is a thread throughout the book. And actually it's funny because it's consistent with what you're talking about there. You've mentioned pacing a few times there as you were talking. So I want to come back to that. But firstly, just thinking back through everything that you've just noted there and going back 25 years to the first agency that you created, how do the obstacles that prevent scalability, how have they differed from then to now, if at all? Well, I look back at my first agency which was spectacularly famous at the time. You know, we did amazing stuff for amazing clients all over the world. It was brilliant. Um, but it actually, I stopped that agency and started another one because my business partner and I realized at a certain point that our values weren't congruent. Our personal core values didn't actually line, align. And we wanted to go in slightly different directions. And and that was my first real sort of business, I don't know, tragedy slash revelation slash, um, you know, that, that was the big trauma, right? Mm. Um, having to leave and start again from scratch. But the funny thing is that now as a, you know, somebody who focuses a lot of time on teaching and on running the program and teaching others to run the program and so on and lecturing and what have you, um, it's still, it all comes down to personal, your personal values, your core values. You, growing your company is about being able to trust the people around you. The, trusting the people around you comes easier if you know that you share your core values, your personal values. I don't mean the, the, the rubbish you see on people's websites. I mean the, the stuff that matters, like honor or telling the truth or being cut and thrust or whatever your, your values are. It's really, really important that you share those values with the people around you. And just to sort of reinforce the point, this is not about sharing experience. It's not about coming from the same background. In fact, the more diverse you are, the better. And if you look at my the team page on my um, on on our company, you'll see everybody's from different ages, different backgrounds. You name a different way of looking at people. There is we have that. Um, and I think that diversity of thought is really, really important. However, we can all trust each other. I know that every single person that I work with on my team will behave in an honorable way in a crunch. So I don't have to stress about how people will behave in a crunch. I don't have to think about it. And that trust is liberating. And when you're building your company, you want to scale. The first thing that you need to do really is get rid of the people who don't fit your core values, the people who do not fit your uh, values-based culture, because they're C players. They're the people who are holding you back, who are naysayers, who disagree all the time, who don't turn up, who don't work very hard or don't deliver, who your clients complain about. Those people are going to be A players somewhere else where they do fit the values. 
And moving those out was one of the first things that we always do. Is, you know, everybody knows who the three or four or five people are in their business who are the C players. Um, and so, you know, you asked what's changed. The reality is the personal core values of the founders and then the people around them and then the wider team. I didn't know it at the time, but that was central then and it's central now. And it's interesting because it ties in with something I wanted to ask you going back to the point about pacing. And so you talked a little bit about not necessarily why you shouldn't go slow, but why the frameworks that you've worked on and produced help agencies and companies to grow in a a two-year period. But on the flip side of that, I imagine that you've seen that pacing issue at play when people try to grow at a speed that the employees aren't comfortable with or they resist. Hmm. And and so part of that ties in with what you were just saying about leadership. But I'm just interested to know, how do you overcome that pacing issue? Trust seems to be a really important part. So you've got to know that the people around you trust that you're doing things at a pace that is well-informed and that is not to make anyone feel uncomfortable or out of place. Right. I'm not, I'm not sure that I agree necessarily with the premise of that. Your, your employees and staff of a company will, by and large, do anything that you say. Right? Your job is to tell them what to do from their point of view. Right? That's not good leadership, but that's what people expect. Okay? So you don't really need to worry that your employees and staff think that you've got this because um, they either trust it already or they're not there. Mm-hmm. So it's not about that. It's, it's really it's about how do you make progress and change acceptable when normally as a leader, when you ask people to change the way that they do things or you tell people that you are going to change things, most people are naturally conservative. Most people are quite happy doing what they want to do, what they do right now. Um, and, you know, to improve and to be able to learn a bit more and so on. But most people don't want big change. It's not, you know, we're, we're, we're built for stability. Mm. Leaders who want to grow their companies do, uh, they recognize that you need to change. And that, that what I talked about earlier about, you know, we perfect the system that we've got. And in order to make the next step, you've got to, to some degree, you've got to create a whole new set of processes and then transition between the old way and the new way. Now, that's quite a wrench. That's a proper transformation. And the only way that you can do that transformation is by getting your people to want that transformation, to buy into the idea of it. And I mean, I'm just, I'm reminded when I first got a mentor, I suppose I was probably on agency number three by then. And and I first went out and I looked for a mentor. I joined an organization that, that teaches you how to be a CEO. And I'd go there one day a month and once a month I'd come back to the office and there would be this change grenade that I'd lob at everybody, right? It would be, I've learned some new way of doing things. We're going to do every all change. Now, that was great for the first couple of, couple of months. But after a little while, I'd noticed that nothing would happen. People would roll their eyes mm. and sort of tut behind my back. And then and th- they knew that if they waited another three, wait, three weeks, there'd be another change coming along in a minute. And so nothing ever actually changed. <laughs> and what I learned from that, was, uh, A, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, And it was all terribly exciting for me, but it really wasn't exciting for anybody else. Um, But what I learned and that I brought into uh, the book and the 2Y3X program is if you gather around you your best and your brightest and your the most engaged people and you ask them to design the next stage and you ask them to figure out how to make it work, then they will make it happen. They won't resist it because they will have designed it themselves. And the secret source of the 2Y3X program is getting the superstar team to build the future, design the future, and then build it and implement it as a team. Not in such a way that not waiting for you to tell them what to do and then resist it and roll their eyes and tut behind your back, but get them to be uh, an intrinsic, implicit part of uh, the change mechanisms themselves. 
because that way you get them pulling you forward rather than you having to push them forward. Pushing people forward is really hard work. Breaking some of that down and I guess going back to uh, my original question or maybe reframing my original question, what have you seen is the most difficult exercise for leaders or business owners in making this change? It sounds like that one of the most, and just from my experience and obviously from yours as well, is letting people go that have maybe been a part of that journey to date when you're going through change is a difficult thing to do, but necessary. Is there any bigger obstacle and any common obstacles that you find in leaders that are going through that change? Yeah, a couple, I think. I mean, one thing to note is that one of the easiest ways of getting people who don't, who aren't up for the journey mm. to um, get off the bus, to, to paraphrase Jim Collins, um, <laughs> is to announce the intention to change and to ask for people who want to be part of the change to join you in that change and in that journey. They're your future, and they're the people that you should be involving in the design of that future, the new processes, the new ways of doing things and so on. Um, but in terms of the, resi- the, the the biggest barrier, and I hate to say this because I know that I'm that uh, some people at different stages of their career may bristle at this, but it's it's getting over the founder's ego, mm. and the only person who can do that is the founder. And I speak as a serial founder who carried around an ego the size of a I don't know, small planet for a long time. And, and it took me a long time to get over myself. And I find it over and over again. The people who come to us, because we don't go, we don't, we don't go out to people pitching the 2i3x program. People come to us when they're ready. And what marks readiness is I've got to a point where I've recognized as a leader that I've I've perfected the system we've got, I've perfected this agency and it's great, but I keep trying to, to grow beyond it and I can't. And I did that for a year and I thought, well, you know what, it's going to be better next year. And then next year came and it wasn't any better. And I'm now demoralized and frustrated and I don't know what to do. So I am now going to consider whether or not I should go outside and look for something that will take me on the journey so that I can learn and so that I can get a grip again of the company and turn it into whatever I want to turn it into. You know, 2Y3X is a two-year program. At the end of two years, everybody who does the program now knows what to do in order to keep carry on scaling, whether they come into the program at you know 1.6 million or 2.5 million or 5 million or 10 million. It doesn't really matter that, we show them how the transition works so that they can keep doing that. And so that's the, that's the only real blockage is we have to wait for the owner to be ready to do it because we can't persuade an owner that they ought to do it uh, if they're not ready for it. Hmm. That's really interesting because one of the, I've got a note in front of me. Uh, it was a phrase actually from, I think it was your LinkedIn. It will, I can't remember if it's from your LinkedIn or from your book, but it's it's helping to agencies to avoid fatal errors. So avoiding mistakes that everyone continuously makes. <laughs> yeah. And I found that interesting. And as I'm thinking this through and as you're talking, it sounds to me like one of the biggest fatal errors to avoid in in the journey of trying to scale your agency actually is your own ego. The fatal error is just um, maybe pandering to your own ego too much. Is that fair? Um, it's a difficult one because there are a lot of fantastic companies that are driven by ego. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I joke that I used to carry around a, an ego the size of a planet. Um, we all have an ego. Mm. I, I still have a serious ego you know i went to hachette and got a book published that's not you know that's not a shy retiring introvert um but you manage it you learn how to manage it and you learn what's useful and what's not useful in terms of ego and and i'm very conscious that bits of the ego that i now have as 
one of the tools in my arsenal, if you like, is, mm. you know, allows me to put myself forward. It allows me to stand up. It allows me to teach at, you know, some of the best business schools in the world. That's awesome. And I get pleasure from that. I get pleasure from recognizing that I'm good at some things. But where ego gets in the way is not seeking help, is not finding wisdom from outside or experience from outside. And where you find yourself is, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really smart and I'm really bright and therefore I can work this out for myself. And so you do trial and error. And that, that, that kills companies. And I talked earlier about growth being, you know, unambitious growth targets being within the margin for error. Even if you set a, an ambitious growth target, trial and error will knock that back down to a level where you're still within the margin for error, just because you're, you're increasing the risk and the odds of failure. So, you know, ego's incredibly useful. It's what got your company started. It's what gives you the confidence to be able to go out and convince people that you, you're onto the right thing. But it can get in the way. And I wish I had known for the first half of my agency career that that um, that there were other people who actually knew what they were doing far, far better than I did. Yeah, well, that's a key takeaway from for me, actually, is that it's not necessarily the ego itself that's a problem, but it's knowing how to channel it to make it effective. And you talk in your book, and, and I think you mentioned at the beginning that you're an advocate for getting that third-party support, that consultancy into your business to help you out and to help avoid mistakes that other people have made. So it sounds to, <laughs> it sounds as if the application, well, using a third party or a mentor to come in and help you channel that ego is actually one way to avoid the fatal errors um, that, that yeah, I mentioned completely. before. I'm, laugh I'm yeah. laughing because I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> of course I advocate, you know, doing an accelerator um, or reading the book or getting, you know, get, getting yourself a, a, a heavyweight mentor. I think that that's, you know, I've, I've been a chairman of a whole bunch of amazing, amazing agencies. Um, and, and so, of course, I, I, I believe it's survivorship bias, you know. I'm successful and I survived and I did it there, this way, more or less by accident, and therefore this way must be the, the golden road. Um, but it does make life easier. And if you want to do it all yourself and you do want to muscle through and you want to go through the trial and error and so on, then fantastic, more power to your elbow. Turns out that's how I did it. Um, but if you don't, and if your ambition is that you want to turn your company into an international company or you want to be five times bigger so that you can do an employee-owned trust uh, or turn yourselves into a social impact company or uh, make a dent in the universe or sell and retire early, then it's worth considering whether or not, you know, the pragmatic idea of getting somebody in to sort it out for you might not be a good one. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be my company or my consultants. The only person who can choose is you. And the only person who can decide which is going to be best for you is you because whoever you work with has got to be aligned with your values too. I mean, one of the reasons that I decided to scale 2Y3X was because I know that I'm quite a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm Marmite to some degree. And I wanted to have lots of other people who were, who could deliver the program who weren't my personality. And who would so that we could expand the reach and make the program much more accessible to a wider variety of companies and entrepreneurs. And looking through that consultant lens, so picking up on that, your current role and what you're currently driven by and what you're currently working towards and supporting, just a scenario based question, uh, picking up from some of those points. So uh, let's say someone makes an inquiry and you join that first call with a business owner or that first meeting with a business owner. You talked about ego just a moment ago, and you, you've spoken about leadership and the, the willingness to change. But is there anything that you look out for in those early calls that gives you an indication 
you know, you, you think to yourself, yeah, this company is in the right position for a change of culture or for the growth that this program delivers. Is there anything that stands out to you that is definite, like definitely like a tick in the box and anything that stands out to you that's, that would suggest to you actually, this is going to be a really difficult job. What is, what is it that you first look for? Um, I think just by getting in touch with us, Mm -hmm. it, that's kind of a a qualifier that, that somebody is more or less ready. So we can take that bit out of the equation, which is quite, quite nice and neat for us. We, we, the companies that we work with are at least 20 people, usually at least one point one and three quarter million revenue. Um, and north of that. So anywhere between that and 10 million, call it. Um, because they'll have the resources and they'll have the sophistication to be able to bring the tools to bear that are going to be required in uh, systemic change and transformational change, and likely the people too. But the sort of the, the converse of that is we also look for people who are, who really, really, really want they're determined to grow, that they really want it. They want to get to the under, other end of this, but they are really frustrated by their lack of progress because that's the, the kind of person where we can really help, where it becomes a liberation and a joy. And for me personally, I'm speaking for my colleagues too, um, the joy for us is watching the transformation that happens in the morale of the company, of the, in the morale of the owner and the, the leadership. And, you know, watching the first six months of groundwork and then another three months of consolidation and then suddenly the company starts scaling up. That's, there's joy in that because you, you get to see the light in everybody's eyes and the sort of this, I don't know, just the recognition of the power and, uh, and capabilities that they've got. And that, I mean, that's the reward. It's absolutely awesome to be a part of that as an external advisor, um, you know, running and facilitating the program where largely our job actually is, is not just sort of saying, uh, have you considered this and here's how to think about it and here's some best practice um, paired with don't do that. That's never worked in the history of, of humankind. Um, but but that, that our job is to hold the team's feet to the flames is to make certain that the pace happens and that it's relentless and um, at exactly the right standard. So we have this kind of role of being the slightly the, the, the people who hold everybody to account, you know, the wicked uncle kind of thing, mm. rather than being the friend and the, the, the confidant and the, the, the internal counsel. We're not there for that. That's what non-execs are for and mentors and so on. We're there to coach a team through the process of transforming their business so that the owner can get an, a, a big step towards their dream. Because if we do that, then that, that becomes enormous fun. And I don't, I, you know, most of the people that we work with start off in a place where it's starting to not be fun mm. or it's become not fun. and I, I have the luxury of not having to do anything particularly. Um, so work for me has to be fun. My colleagues, I'm surrounded by amazing people that I have fun with. And we all gather together on a Wednesday afternoon and compare notes. And somebody will say, Eva will say, oh, it's amazing. We're at month six with this client. And they're just starting to realize what, they, what they've changed and what they've done. And it's wonderful. And we'll all applaud that and celebrate it. And it's fabulous. I think work should be fun. I, I passionately believe that we have a choice. As entrepreneurs, we have a choice. You know, are we doing this because, because we're enjoying it? Or are we doing this because we set off on a path and even if the book is terrible, we're going to finish it no matter what, right? Which is a, a, a decent enough metaphor. If it's a terrible book, some point, sometimes you've got to put it down and start something else. And I know that when I was an entrepreneur and I screwed things up, which I did a couple of times, a couple of times, I did an infinite number of times, but every time I screwed up, there was one agency that I ran that I, 
I really, I, 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 I cocked it up big time. I got it wrong. And I made the mistake of, of, uh, of having got it wrong. I then sold it. And then I looked at it and, and at the buyers. And a, a couple of years later, I decided to buy the business back because I thought I could do it better. I now knew what the answer was. And so I bought the business back. And I doubled its revenue in a year. And, but that was a mistake. I, I'd left the business because I'd sold the business because it wasn't fun, because I was in the wrong place doing the wrong things. And I'd bought it back through some kind of bizarre hubris, I think. And it took me about a nanosecond to realize that, yes, I could turn it into a success, but boy, couldn't wait to sell it again. So that's what I did. Um, I, I think work's got to be fun. And so you either decide to stop doing it or you decide to do something about it. And that's where we come in or others like us come in. Yeah, that's really interesting because you were talking about maybe the first six months of working with the company and the joy of seeing them go through change and sharing notes with your team. But across the two years, do you see any trends with businesses that hit a plateau or you, you see that on the horizon as you're working with them and then you as an advisor have to motivate them to get through that? The reason I'm asking that is because I'm thinking about, you talked earlier about one of the first decisions is making sure that you, you've got the right team in place and you know, you let people move on that just aren't bought into the vision or aren't bought into the future of the company and, and where you're going. And so that leaves you with, in theory, a highly motivated, uh, motivated superstar team. And so your, your goal, I imagine, is keeping them motivated. And I suspect that because they're the staff that you've kept or they're the employees that you've kept because you trust them, uh, they'll be self-motivated to an extent anyway. But do you still see superstar staff hit a plateau and become demotivated as part of that process because it's so challenging? Never, never. Right. Um, and and part of it is, I mean, you know, if we've got a, if we're working with a company with call it thirty people, yeah, um, we'll have probably five or six people, including the owner, on the growth lab team, which is the, this forward-looking team. It's not the senior management team, by the way. This is just the superstars and from across the business. Uh, and across seniorities, um, these are the people who really want to shape the future. So they're pretty motivated to start off with. And then we are trusting them. We are giving them, we're teaching them that it's okay to take on a task that, that will have far-reaching impact on the business. For example, you know, uh, designing job scorecards. A players, superstars, like to know what they're being judged against. Most mm. of us don't have anything that says this is how you're going to be judged. Most of us have a job description that says, you know, if you do well enough, you might get promotion next year, mm. right? Um, a job score scorecard says your job is to increase the revenue from your existing client base by 50% to increase the satisfaction score by your clients in account management from an average of 86% to an average of 95% and so on and so forth. So you know exactly what you've got to do. And then you're mentored through that process. Now, um, once we give a task like that to somebody on this team, we then give them the tools so they can do the research to find out what great looks like. And then they prototype what they've come up with. And then once they've prototyped it, they roll it out. Now, that takes three months, that whole process, to implement a significantly transformative change in the business. They've taken ownership of it. They've done the research. They've figured out how to make it work in their business because their business is unique um, for them and for their colleagues. And the second that they see that that's happened, they realize that they've made a change. Now, that's incredibly empowering, incredibly satisfying. So the motivation comes from this slow realization over the course of usually just the first two quarters is what it takes two quarters of delivering tasks. And that's uh, 10 tasks if you've got five people on the growth team. So Q1 with five tasks, another five tasks. That's 10 changes you've made to your business in just the first six months. And you did this. 
Mm. And if you're an A player, that's the most satisfying thing in the world. That gives you incredible job satisfaction, incredible sense of achievement. Am I making a difference? And we all, we all, Maslow, you know, we all want to make a difference. Mm. So what we're doing is facilitating that, that, if you like, self-actualization, that realization that I can make a difference. I can help shape the future of this company. And what happens over time is you get that team holding each other to account for the standards of the changes that they're making. And so by the time we leave after two years, we've got a team that is the future of the business that I don't mean owns it in a shareholder sense, but owns it Mm. in a confidence and an ability and a capability sense. That's, That's exhilarating to watch. And to experience, um, if you're driven, uh, again, if you, if you're the right person to be driven by that. And the reason that I asked the question is because I was thinking about incentivization and I was thinking of that in context of your superstar employees and your team. And I see a lot of companies that perhaps try and incentivize employees with perks and offers and mm. all of these kind of things. But what makes more sense is if they're, if they know that they're a critical part of the company's success in the future, that supersedes any type of perk that someone can offer. And so in your experience and in the program 2Y3X, you place a great emphasis on job satisfaction as opposed to incentivization. Is that fair and true or accurate? Uh, it is, absolutely. Um, it's a question that everybody all, always asks before we start. You know, do I, am I going to have to set up chair options and things like this? Right, right. Um, uh, and then it suddenly becomes a non-issue three months in. It's like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. Um, and then you can address that then in the second year. And you do, you're addressing it then because it's the icing on the cake, not the carrot. Mm. Right. And I think the reward comes for, uh, doing great stuff. Reward is not a motivator reward comes it's re it's in arrears right it's <laughs> it's it's you don't dangle the reward because that's uh, that's i don't know manipulative and corrupting and mm. and actually attracts the wrong kinds of behaviors one of the things that i've seen with some of the companies that we've worked with people like decent an amazing company from a culture point of view they've done a lot of work on rewards and incentivization and one of the things that they came they realized was that even though you go into this as a leader thinking, well, you know, I'm going to have to pay people more or I'm going to have to give them share options or whatever, uh, all of which are good, by the way. Um, uh, please pay your people more. The more you pay them, the better people you'll get. Um, but some people are actually motiv- far more motivated with a sense of achievement, a sense of changing things, or with uh, you saying, I tell you what, instead of us giving you a bonus, uh, would you like to pick a charity? And about mm. a third of people will actually forego a financial reward in favor of giving that to a cause that they believe in. And sometimes you can build that back into your company as well. So it's, it's, I think incentives, I think if you go back to the core human drivers, you know, what are our values and address those when you're thinking about incentives rather than just the sort of, easy, let's give bananas on Tuesdays and a football machine and a raise every year. You're, you're addressing the middle bunch of people, your B players, with those kinds of things. You're not addressing your superstars. And mm. the thing I learned about management eventually was don't focus on the C players and try and make them better because you won't because they're in the wrong place. Don't focus on your B players because superstars want attention, so they will – then become B players so that they get your attention. Focus on the A players because then any superstars that are latent in your B player pool will start clamoring for your attention too by being brilliant. And so focus on the top and elevate everybody. Don't focus on the middle and make everybody average. We were talking there about incentives uh, versus job satisfaction. And I picked up a note, and I think this was from your LinkedIn profile. I just can't remember as part of the research rather than your book. And it, there was a note to say in one of your companies previously, you had given all staff one day a week off for personal creative projects. And I just had that written down as a note because it made me smile 
I also thought, wow, that's a really bold decision or choice. And I just wanted to know a little bit more in closing for this episode, because it ties really nicely in with the job satisfaction point I think we were just discussing. Mm. Um, If you can talk me through maybe how that decision was made, the type of company you were in, and what some of the outcomes were. Sure. Um, So this was my second agency. This is the agency post um, my first where I hadn't shared uh, my business partner's values and vice versa. So my new agency, this was at the beginning of 1997, it was called uh, Head New Media. And I started that with Jason Holland, who uh, is a genius creative. He was he was the world's most awarded digital creative for quite a long time um, and a truly lovely man. And, and we genuinely shared our core values. And when we started our agency, we just, we, we sat down and discussed what kind of agency we wanted it to be. And you know, bear in mind, this is early days of web design of, you know, big ticket uh, online social media things that we were inventing at the time. And, and so w- w- we, we had been, we'd grown a bit fed up of clients saying to us, no, you can't do that because it will break a browser or you can't do that because it's a bit wacky or it requires, you know, you can only play that on a Mac. And so we, we came up with this thing called Headspace, the Headspace project. The Headspace project was basically, it was, it was the world's first online creative gallery. And we invited participants from all over the world to join this gallery and take a space in Headspace and just play. And the only rule was this has got to break something. And you'd go there frequently, your machine would crash because there was some wacky, uh, you know, Java application on there that one of our programmers had invented. Anyway, we were doing this for ourselves and we just felt that, you know, we wanted to recruit amazingly creative people. And so, when we recruited people, when, when we finally hired them, we said, right, for the first month, we want you to build your first headspace project, whatever it is. Mm. And we had an amazing guy called John Lundberg who came along and, and he did crop circles. And so he, he created a website called Circle Makers. And we had somebody else who was into uh, indie music and he did Indie World, which was a, the biggest indie online community. We had a a uh, designer um, who was who came up with the idea of, uh, of something incredibly un-PC, um, but it was it, I think it was called Slap a Spice Girl, and it was it was one of those sort of um, uh, whack-a-mole type things. Yeah, um, with I think you know one of their choruses on repeat over and over and over again, very loud. It's incredibly irritating, um, and and you know that that. I think that game got had a million visitors in the first year, which was unheard of on the internet at the time. Mm. And so we had all of these amazing things that broke every rule that were completely, you know, they were all out of bounds. No client would touch touch any of them. But people did this for a month. And then from then on, one day a week was spent on Headspace doing their thing, doing new site or, you know, managing their community or whatever it happened to be. And this was amazing. And, and it did two things, had two effects. The first was completely unexpected. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, came to us and said, this is so amazing. Would you like to be our agency? We want you to redesign our corporate finance website. <laughs> Just completely, I mean, it was bonkers. <laughs> um, so that was, that was one completely unintended consequence. But the other was... Our culture was absolutely magic. People queued to come and work for us. And I remember being standing outside um, uh, the studio, having a natter with a bunch of people, and being doorstepped by somebody who desperately wanted us to be the, you know, to, to move them and their programming team to our company because because we were so cool. And it wasn't because we'd set out to be cool. It was because we'd set out to have a place where we wanted to work, which was fun. And that got us on the radar of Interpublic. And, and I think we sold in, we got a, approached by everybody um, to buy us. And in, in the end, I think we sold 
less than two years after we started the agency for a multiple of 12, which is bonkers. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it didn't stop me making every mistake that you can make, but the culture, my God, the culture was amazing. <laughs> Loved that place. I lied then. I have one final quick question uh, <laughs> as we close out. And, and this doesn't have, I'm not expecting a, a long or extensive answer from you. And I, I appreciate you, you seem like someone that I could talk to uh, for a very long time or talk with for a very long time. Uh, but the four day work week, um, is that something that you're generally in favor of and an advocate for or massively? Yeah, massively. Um, in fact, less. So, so um, I'm recruiting at the moment for a digital marketing manager because 2Y3X is now in the US and in Canada and in Europe uh, and in the Middle East and in Africa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can't, we can't go through all the countries. No, all. no, no, no. Uh, but, <laughs> okay. Um, so we're expanding. So, so we're hiring a digital marketing manager and the digital marketing manager, the job spec is a 25 hour working week. Amazing. And, and the reason that we think that that's right is because I mean, I don't know if you know, there was an experiment in Sweden a few years ago where they experimented with a, um, uh, a, I think it was a five hour working day. Mm. And what they found was that people got in really, really early. Nobody spent any time on Facebook. And everybody got their stuff done so that they could go home quickly and spend the rest of the day with their families. And uh, you don't have to have a family, but you do have a life. Most people, you know, you've got hobbies and you've got the outside world to explore and so on. And so we don't expect people to work from an office. In fact, we don't actually have an office. Um, and we expect people to be able to manage their own time because we trust them because we only recruit uh, for uh, trustworthy, honourable, em- empathetic people. So, um, you know, we we trust people to be able to manage their own time. And I want the best of the people I work with. I I want to have the absolute cream of their best attention and their best intentions and the best results and inputs and outcomes. And you'll only go get that by allowing them to choose what the right mode is for their attention span a few people not many people can can hold it for seven or eight hours i know that you were up this morning at five o'clock in the morning it is now eight o'clock in the evening um so i know you've had a very very long day but it's unfair to expect to ask of anybody that they focus beyond the natural human limits and i think that we're coming to recognize now that um business is about the humans who are part of it it's about the values that you have, and it's about um, making it fun and enjoyable, not just for the entrepreneur, but for the people that you work with. And I'd infinitely rather have people who thought it was fun because we were a great part of their day, not the burdensome bit that they were relieved to get home from after <laughs> eight hours of slaving away. <laughs> well, Felix, uh, you just described it perfectly in that um, I have survived beyond the unnatural human limits in my working day today. Um, <laughs> but I've also enjoyed it. I've had a, a re- I really appreciate you taking an hour out of uh, your day. I know you've had a very busy day too. And uh, I think we set out and achieved what we talked about very early on is that, you know, you've had a long day discussing webinars and interviews. And uh, I wanted to really surface some of the key insights that have driven you in your career and that are also found in your book. A reminder to anyone listening that uh, the book is Scale at Speed, How to Triple the Size of Your Business and Build a Superstar Team. And Felix, before I let you go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you, 2Y3X, and where they can find the book? Sure. Uh, The book is available absolutely everywhere. Um, Uh, in all formats, although in North America, the paperback comes out on the 26th of September, I think. But everywhere else you can buy it. Uh, Please do. Please review it. Please enjoy it, uh, most of all. Um, And enjoy the stories. And I like feedback about the stories that are in it too. Um, But it is the manual for the 2Y3X program. It doesn't hold anything back. It tells you how to do it to yourself, for yourself. Um, The 2Y3X program if you do want outside help, if you want somebody who knows how to implement all of this, and if you want to talk about that, then 2y3x.com. And if you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, 
more than happy to to discuss things, talk about things, share things. I enjoy that. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at Felix V. And yeah, I look forward to, to hearing from uh, a few people. I, I've really, really enjoyed this. Uh, so, brilliant. Scott, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll add that the um, I've not quite finished the book. I'm near the end of the book, but it's a great mix of uh, storytelling and practical advice and frameworks and techniques that really can help you scale at speed and uh, speaks true to all of the things that we've discussed today. So all of the details for everything we've discussed today will be in the show notes. But for now, I'll just say, Felix, thanks again for your time. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Take care. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.